Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and some of the sounds of a week in culture. This time, the historical speeches of great Irish women fuel the work of composer Gráinne Mulvey. We'll hear about her new work, which premieres next month in Clonmel. Tygo Sullivan is here to wonder what Dunbar's number means in the world of the Irish small-town novel. And 50% of percussion duo Bangers and Crash, Katrina Frost, guides us up and down the marimba in search of the subtleties of Irish tradition. Traditional playing, but we start the week with the latest from Jennifer Walsh, who's been noticing some timeless phenomena embedded in the world of smartphones and tech culture festivals. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things Know Things. Back in the very earliest days of January this year, I witnessed a strange phenomenon in the hallway of my house a tiny cinematic projection of the woods outside my door, albeit upside down. It turned out that the low angle of the sun, days after the solstice, was just the perfect height to focus itself through the keyhole in one of the doors. With no intervention, the keyhole had transformed into a tiny camera obscura, projecting the image of outside onto the wall opposite the door. The projection was very small, barely three by three centimetres, but kneeling down next to it, I could make out the clouds scudding by, the conifers waving in the wind. It was enchanting. I quickly became obsessed with my chance camera obscura. Each day I'd hover in the hall around 11.34am, the time I'd first seen the projection, in the hopes the angles would still be right for it to happen again. I dragged an ancient slide screen into position so the image had a better surface to project on. I experimented with placing tiny strips of tape across different parts of the keyhole to try and focus the image more sharply. And of course, I tried to film it on my phone. And, as expected, the resulting videos don't capture anything close to what it looked like or felt like to look at it. A few weeks ago, I was in Berlin for Transmediale, a festival of art, technology and ideas. Crossing the spray one night on my way back to the festival hotel, I spotted the full moon. This was a snow moon the first of the year, suspended beautifully in the sky over the water. Naturally, I tried to take a photo and, naturally, I ended up with an overexposed silver blob. An artist from the festival standing next to me had far more success, though. She had a Samsung and showed me how her phone could take a close-up of the face of the moon. Technically, The lenses on a phone are not long enough to capture details that far away, but with the intervention of a little image processing, you can get a clear picture. And indeed, that technological intervention seemed part of the charm. A close-up photo of the moon, magically massaged into being through AI. We live in a time where we have immediate and expansive access to images in a way unprecedented in human history. The flood of images we're confronted with each day is so overwhelming that at times it threatens to destabilise our idea of what it is to be human. There are certainly days when I feel dazed at the sheer surfeit, 
concerned over what the endless representations of aspirational bodies and lifestyles and breakfasts, the waves of deep fakes and misinformation might mean for us. But then I remember that we humans have always been interested in mediating the world back to ourselves, whether through art, camera obscuras or our phones. And I can connect a partially fictional picture of the moon to my chance camera obscura, to our paleolithic ancestors gazing at tiny projections of animals on their tent walls. It's part of how we lived then and how we live now. Jennifer Walsh there with Things Know Things and check out everywhere from Spotify to the Culture File page on the Lyrics site for more. Women were muted again today, one journalist wrote in 2021 when the Mother and Baby Homes Commission of Investigation published its report. It's a muting Irish women have long endured, says Gronia Mulvey, but it's a silencing the composer has been working to address. In 2020, she created Great Women, built on speeches from four historical Irish women, and her latest, Until the Women of Ireland Are Free, expands on the idea, this time bringing into her music speeches by Irish women from from trade unionist Harriet Morrison and suffragette Hannah Sheehy Skeffington to Magdalene survivor Elizabeth Coppin. Until the Women of Ireland Are Free gets its world premiere in Clonmel next month as part of the Finding a Voice Festival of Music by Women Composers. And ahead of that, Culture Files Rachel Andrews spoke to Gráinne Mulvey about voices muted, freed and synthesised. covers the period of women having to try so hard to, to get the, the vote and then the physical and mental problems that women have had to endure as well and have had to suffer. It covers various different texts from people like Hannah Shee Skeffington and Margaret Hinchy and... It goes right through then to Claire Daly's speech on the repeal of the eighth. And it also looks at Elizabeth Cop. It looks at her speech at Oxford Union at the Oxford University address that she gave there about 2018. And she states a harrowing account of her time spent in incarceration in the Magdalene Laundries and before that in the industrial school. This, I believe, is a significant signal of change. It's a follow-on from Great Women, a project which centred on Countess Markovich and Rosie Hackett and also then incorporated the inaugural speeches of President Robinson and President McAleese. This emerging Ireland of tolerance and empathy. The old Irish term for province is chocolate, meaning a fifth. This other piece has been another kind of thread from that, um, and I thought it would be good to extend, you know, to look at other issues. There are various different speeches um, within the activists' uh, work. So, you know, very often you see uh, speeches that are made in the States or whatever, Harriet Morrison made, you know, great speeches within the state. 
uh, Hannah Sheehy Skeffington toured the US with uh, lots of different um, speeches that she made. Uh, it was absolutely remarkable um, against conscription and for women's franchise and, uh, you know, uh, for equal pay and rights and everything. And, and then I was trying to think of how to capture the speech um, what else to do with the speech. The speeches are also intrinsic to the textures of the music as well. Uh, for example, when I was working with Ailish Kerrigan, who's the mezzo-soprano for this piece, I could record her voice and then I manipulated that and then played it back, then resynthesized it as well. So the basis of even fragments of the speeches become part of the embedded texture. And that's almost like a kind of a struggle that women have always had. They have been silenced for so long and it's just to evoke that as well and to bring it out in other ways uh, like where there's fragments of speeches and then there's parts of sentences that come out and then there's stated parts of speeches that are made within the whole work throughout. And when you say synthesize, what does that mean exactly? That means, you know, taking the voice and remolding it into something else, redeveloping it into, say, textures or sounds or stretching it or, you know, reversing it or splicing it into small bits so that you're you're making some other collage from the collection of, of speech that you have and then that you can actually you know you can embed that in the texture or you can superimpose it on the speech so that it has a life of its own as well apart from the instrumental accompaniment. Her voice is synthesized, so it's like she has, you know, it creates these drones and different things, so it creates these kind of pitches which underscore the, the music or the underscore the speeches. And then there's other things um, which I felt was kind of strange dichotomy in a way, but some of the music is quite tonal, which is like to show the kind of veneering that society had really, you know, where women the state and church and everything there was a kind of veneer over all these institutions that were um, there in the background and that we weren't really um, privy to the knowledge of what was going on. So there's that element as well which I was um drawn to to as well to try and portray this kind of beauty where there was this really bad uh, these bad things happening as well it's something that I love doing anyway and um um, I suppose my treatment is kind of unorthodox because I like all the sounds of the voice, the breath, everything. So like all those aspects of the, the you know, every kind of little nuance that I can find goes in the mix as well. So it's it's not just a clear kind of sonic um, palette. Everything is there. And I love that about different voices because that marks that person's voice, that thing that they do, that little nuance, whatever, and you're you're aware of it then. 
for other pieces that you might actually filter through or you know work through their voices and other capacities so it's 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 nice to have the individual stamp when you're recording this island which stands so confidently on the brink of the 21st century and the third millennium is one our forebears dreamed of and yearned for i was struck by how how many remarkable women there have been right throughout the centuries and that really floored me pride of its people its language and of its vast heritage. An Ireland at the heart of the European Union, respected by nations and cultures across the world. Gronia Mulvey there and the reporter was Rachel Andrews. Until the Women of Ireland are free, premieres on Friday, March 10th in Old St Mary's Church in Clonmel as part of the Finding a Voice Festival. It's who you don't know next on the Culture File Weekly in the latest from Tygo Sullivan. This time the director is contemplating social cohesion and running some Dunbar numbers in his latest Cloud of Unknowing. Early in Pat McCabe's novel The Butcher Boy, a character lying in the doorway of a pub takes a break from singing into a bottle. To shout at our narrator and hero of a sort, Francie Brady. You know me, do you? Francie knows him only as the drunk lad. In the small Monaghan town of the 1960s in which the book is set, the drunk lad cuts a sorry figure. His mind, we guess, is so addled with booze that he has lost his grasp on his own identity. His catchphrase question, perhaps a call for help from passers-by. And well, they might be able to help him, were they inclined to answer. The novel is set in a fictionalised version of every small town in 1960s Ireland, where everyone knows everyone. Although set in the early 60s, the novel was published in 1992, at a time when small towns had changed little since Francie Brady's day. The church maintained its rigid hold on the country, its power not centralised, but distributed locally articulated not through the pulpit, but via the pews, peopled by a unit of moral guardians whose business was to know everyone else's. 1992 was also the year that a British anthropologist called Robin Dunbar published a study that would make his name. Dunbar proposed a theory on human social group size, suggesting an optimum number of group members based on the cognitive capacity of our brains. The number he arrived at was 150, known since as Dunbar's number. Dunbar argued that this was the upper limit for social groups that relied on mutual personal relationships. He and his followers traced the number in Neolithic farming settlements, in ancient Roman army units, in hunter-gatherer groups, in 20th century Christmas card lists. The number didn't exist in isolation, it was part of a proposed series of numbers that quantified intimates, close friends, acquaintances and tribe as a set of concentric social circles. The social structures so described were bound up with evolution and brain size and therefore applied to all, irrespective of culture, location or time in history. Dunbar's ideas rapidly migrated from the academy to the broader culture. Office sizes were soon designed with social cohesion and shared goals in mind, 
in technology too, as tech became interested in online world building. The number was baked early into algorithms that sought to nurture networks and create community. But sadly for Professor Dunbar, it seems his theory is dubious. Dunbar's method of measuring monkey brains and their social groups, then scaling up for human brain sizes, turns out to be not very good or reliable science. And while many social groups can be found to support his theory, it turns out lots of others can be found that go against it. Part of the appeal of Dunbar's theory was that it seemed about right. A look around at mass in 1960s Monaghan might have confirmed the broad accuracy. It may simply have been an observable phenomenon in our own societies, retrofitted with a scientific theory and imagined to hold true for all. If so, Dunbar had unwittingly become part of a broader movement in anthropology that projected Western social norms onto the wider world, claiming their origins in the savannah and the flickering light of caves. Alongside gender roles, nuclear families, ruling classes, male inheritance and property, the idea of the village, an intimate subset of the state, was imagined as the natural order of things. In due course, such assumptions were carried into the new and emerging social networks, creating a curious blend of techno-utopia and white picket-fence retro-conservatism, a kind of Silicon Valley of the squinting windows. Global Village is not created by the motor car or even by the airplane. It's created by instant electronic information movement. The global village is at once as wide as the planet and as small as a little town where everybody is maliciously engaged and poking his nose into everybody else's business. The Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan realized from the start that our digital social revolution might simply recreate the oppressive moralizing structures that we hoped to escape. closing pages of The Butcher Boy, we meet the drunk lad for the last time. He is wheeling a plaster saint across the square, joining the townsfolk as they gather to welcome the end of the world in fervent prayer. A couple of chapters enthralled to Francie Brady and his freewheeling brand of murderous chaos has been enough to make sobriety and religion a better set of options. In the course of the novel we have seen past the neat facade of the town deep into its dark soul and into the quiet, secret traumas that are buried within. Every public persona, we realise, was a mask for someone broken by the violence, the shame, the moralising and the hypocrisy of the Ireland of the novel. We think again of the drunk lad's catchphrase and we begin to realise that it was a rhetorical question, an accusation. Here, nobody knows anybody. Tygo Sullivan's latest cloud of unknowing there, and you'll find previous clouds as well as catch all future clouds and plenty more if you subscribe to the Culture File podcast via the Lyrics site or search Culture File on your favourite podcatcher.
Next, will Irish traditional music find a new friend in the marimba? Tomorrow night at the National Concert Hall in Dublin, Bangers and Crash, the percussionist duo of Alex Petku and Katrina Frost, give a concert featuring at least one answer to that semi-rhetorical question. Katrina Frost will be performing her piece, Trip to Paris, which manages to coax trad textures and techniques from the marimba. Culture Files' Louise Williams met Katrina for a wander over the Rosewood Bar. My name is Katrina Frost, I'm from Cork and I'm a percussionist now living in Dublin. So what does that mean, percussionist? How many different forms of percussion do you play? I'm classically trained and as such, as a classically trained percussionist you learn timpani, snare drum and then tuned percussion instruments such as marimba and vibraphone. Um, Of course percussion, every country in the world has its version of um, their native percussion instrument. The national instrument of Guatemala is actually the marimba. The marimba is said to have African origins and that it travelled to South America, possibly with the slave trade, and there it was developed further. So this is Honduras Rosewood, so this is the best possible. I got this instrument recently with the help of Music Network. That's just the opening passage of a piece uh, myself and Alex Peck were performing next Sunday. And in this concert, it'll be myself and Alex in duet. So mainly together, but we will do a solo piece each. Um, so there's a lot of symmetry to the concert. For instance, um, for the marimba, we will both be playing it for one piece. I will be standing um, basically where you are, which is at the wrong side of the instrument and playing it backwards with Alex facing forwards. And then we will do the same thing for another piece that was written for vibraphone. Um, We will play the instrument separately. And then there's all sorts of other instruments as well required for the last piece we're playing. Um, And so the wind blew, which is based on inspiration that the composer had from wind chimes. say I'm a marimba specialist as such at all um in fact my background would be more drumming um so the tuned keyboard instruments I came to a little bit later in life actually and had to work a bit harder to get up to scratch if you play piano at all it's a huge help but yeah uh, that's how did you play piano yourself I did not (laughs) darn yeah I know percussion is an instrument that's developing all the time although it's the oldest instrument in the world you know it's only in the last kind of hundred years or less with Evelyn Glennie um, performing solo repertoire for percussion that it's seen in its own right rather than sound effects in an orchestra. So it's a very exciting time for percussion and there's cultures from all around the world um, and composers from all around the world writing repertoire for these instruments. So it's very much an evolving thing. Do you think it was looked down on? Um, that's a really tricky question. Um, I, you know, in the orchestra, maybe other instruments instrumentalists might look down on percussionists because in that context I'm not gonna lie like we do have the crack and chat down the back and there mightn't be a whole lot to play sometimes but I can tell you we're serious you know no I I, I'm taking it very seriously genuinely but I, I was thinking you know it's not like um 
I don't think Beethoven was writing, you know, a, a symphony for the Mar- to showcase the marimba. Do you know what I mean? That it wasn't in the pure kind of classical tradition, perhaps? Of course, no, it wasn't. No, very much. Like, timpani was used by Beethoven, but it would have been, um, you know, for effect, really. Whereas what you're doing now, I want to talk a little bit about kind of your approach, which is in terms of bringing Irish traditional music into the marimba. I was discovering over the last few years that a lot of folk music from around the world has been making its way into percussion. And percussion has been used in Irish traditional music, but it's more kind of bubbling away in the background to other Irish traditional instrumentalists. So I was always curious to see um, what it would sound like bringing percussion to the fore of Irish traditional music. I thought it was impossible because... As soon as you put in an ornamentation or anything, you're on the wrong footing, stick-wise. You know, as percussion has advanced and now we hold two mallets in each hand, I was kind of exploring ways of possibly getting around it and trying to get it to sound somewhat authentic and not classical. You know, in traditional music, you have ornamentations and pitch bends and stuff like that. And, you know, the marimba is what it is. It's very percussive instruments like the piano Um you know, it doesn't have a lot of long sustain. The notes, you can't draw the bow across the string like you would on the fiddle. In the classical training, the best possible tone you can get from the instrument is by playing dead centre above the resonator. This is going to give you the richest, most purest sound. So any classical violinist, say, who plays Irish traditional music, it sounds kind of too pronounced and too pure. And the way you'd flick your fingers or cut the note on a fiddle... If I play at the note, then um, it's a lot thinner sound, and that's exactly the sound that I wanted. So it's that clack that I was looking for, that I was enjoying. So I was experimenting with that, but trying to cut it um, where I shouldn't be. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a sample of that. to playing a role um, I'm using two mallets in my right hand and you divide them up with your index finger you keep them separate with your index is it or on your thumb yeah exactly and I can um, manoeuvre them to get different intervals so I have three mallets basically playing one note So my left hand is hitting dead centre to get that really rich tone. And then my other two mallets are on either end of the the key um, to try and get those clacky percussive sounds when I cut the note. I'll show you the difference. So this is playing at dead centre. So then this is the other way. It's a very subtle difference. Um, once once I got the technique, then I could go about other things. Um, you know, what I was really fascinated with on the baron and guitar is how they, in jigs they create that slap sound and a backbeat sound. And I was wondering, can I do that on its own on the marimba? So I'm doing that by doing what we call a dead stroke. And I'm doing the dead stroke again where I shouldn't be playing on the note. And I'm, So not in the centre. Yeah. yeah, so I'm trying to get that kind of slap percussive sound effect. Composing is totally new for me, but um, I suppose it all started with tearing this apart and putting a a microscope on how to achieve this. And once I had the tools down, then 
I kind of tried to knit all of this together and I wrote a piece then for marimba which is in three movements incorporating all these techniques that I'd learned and my hope is to publish that there is a guy in America actually learning it at the moment which is cool that which is what I wanted to bring Irish music further out there and give people access to it who wouldn't normally have access to it but to play it in an authentic way Katrina Frost Marimba there and the reporter was Louise Williams and you can hear the complete trip to Paris as part of Bangers and Crash concert tomorrow Sunday at the National Concert Hall in Dublin with an early start at 3pm and that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly we'll be back with more culinary puns next Saturday tea time on RTE Lyric FM or yes really whenever and wherever you want via podcast bye now <laughs>